Welcome to Banter Radio. I'm Will Sherwin. In this episode, I talk with Danielle Drake from the San Francisco Bay Area. Danielle is on the core faculty of the California Institute of Integral Studies Expressive Arts Therapy Program and a PhD candidate at the Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara. Her dissertation is entitled Spirituality and Creativity Among Culturally Empowered African Americans, A Legacy of Empowered Community Liberation. We recorded this conversation in November 2017, right before I moved to Southern California, first LA, and then Costa Mesa, where I'm at now. We talk about her personal journey in choosing to become a clinical psychologist. She performed some of her spoken word poetry. We discuss African-centered psychology, song lyrics, evocative of therapeutic principles, and teaching narrative and expressive arts practice. You can go online to sfbantr.org for the show notes and contact info for Danielle. She said she'd love to hear any reflections you have from the episode. Enjoy. Danielle, thanks so much for joining me here. And I was really interested in talking with you after um, talking with you at the Narrative Camp yeah. and put on by Reauthoring Teaching yeah. uh, in the summer. And it was a really special place. And we had some really special conversations, I thought. Yeah. And I, I, like, I want to talk to you more. And I want to share some of the conversations that we had with other people. Yes. So that was my thinking. And you were in the core faculty of the Expressive Arts Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Correct. And you're also uh, in a doctoral program can you tell me the... Sure, yes. I'm in the clinical psychology doctoral program at Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara. And you just advanced to candidacy, is that the term? Yes, I advanced to candidacy and my dissertation is IRB approved, so I'm able to start collecting my data. I feel like I'm rolling along and I just completed all of my internship applications and I'm just waiting to hear back about interviews. So it's, it's you know, it's an exciting time. It's, it's very exciting. I was glad to be part of the, the celebration party for your advancing to Canada see it for your birthday as well. Yes. So some of the things I would like to let other people know about are some of the art practices that you talked about doing at EXA, yes. both in terms of helping people who come to see us as therapists and community workers, but also maybe as ways of teaching people uh, how to do this kind of work. And yes. some of those programs you talked about that uh, you said, you know, you don't always have time to let the larger community outside of CES know about some of the innovations you're developing there. So that's that we could let some people know about that. Yes. And also, um, I know you have a background in spoken word uh, work and poetry, and I'd love to hear the history of that and maybe hear some examples sure. of that. We also talked about some songs you think might be illustrative of some of the therapeutic principles that are important to you. Yes. So I'd love to talk about those. And you also mentioned, you know, especially interested in like African-centered psychology. Yes. I'd love to discuss that and maybe the differences between that and like more Euro-American psychologies sure. and what you see. So I'd love to share this with the broader community. Is there any, uh, one you'd especially like to send this out to? You know, if you could send this, you know, some, some of what, what you're working on, what's important to you in your work, and you could send it out to someone, who would it, who would it be? Oh, wow. Definitely the African-American community. I feel like so much of what I do, who I am, and, and how I show up in the world is really based in that. I grew up in a very, very... What, how would I describe it? Just loving, connected community in South Central Los Angeles during the 80s when it was really 
tough. Like 70s and 80s, there was just a lot of gang violence and things like that. So there was lots of stuff happening around me, but I was really insulated from that because of my community. You know, I, I grew up in a family that like on both sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side are from the South. So my dad is from Mississippi. My mom is from Texas and they have a ton of brothers and sisters. I grew up with cousins on top of cousins. So there was just this way in which I lived in this very insular world that was really about the African-American experience at that time. So a lot of my work when I think about it, is geared towards that community. But then it's also about giving other people a glimpse into what that community has can offer and what it's like and what tools, what skills are naturally there. Um, because often when we talk about the African-American community, it comes from a deficit model that there are ways in which, you know, just media portrayals of of Black folks in the United States is very negative and derogatory. And that was not my experience in the least, you know? (laughs) And so, I, I, you know, it's just a very creative community that's based in spirituality. And so that is what I am sort of promoting in my work Even in my dissertation, I wanted to specifically do a strengths-based dissertation. Like that was really important to me. It definitely falls outside of the norm in clinical psychology, which is very much focused on problems. So right there, I'm like reauthoring my way of entering into clinical psychology by even naming that I want to focus on strengths, you know? Like I work at the shelter for youth who are homeless right now, and actually, there's other residential counselors. Like I'm thinking of a young African American woman just last week was talking about wanting to go into psychology or social work specifically to help with the Af- African American community or community. Mm-hmm. So um, she might not know some of the work you've read about or that you talked about. What what kind of messages would you want to send to her about kind of taking on that path? Oh wow, that it is a noble path. <laughs> And I say that because, you know, when you decide that you are going to engage in this clinical psychology based work for your community, that's it's a sacrifice. You're doing something in order to hopefully bring more resources, positivity, like shine a light on what's already great about the community and then find strategies to help with the things that that we struggle with, you know, intergenerational economic disparities. That is a huge piece of it. What I would want to say to her is, yes, do it. And that you have so much love and support and that there are people whose shoulders you can stand on. Like I'm certainly one of those people and that there are going to be people who potentially may not support you necessarily but you've got to go out and find your crew like your your people who are going to be supportive of you and that's everywhere you got to find it in the school settings who are the instructors and professors who are going to be supportive of you who are the friends that you need to make who are going to be supportive and not get you derailed who are the family members who maybe don't understand what the hell you're doing but are really supportive of of you 
and um, just real, really build a community of support around you that can that can help you like navigate all of the twists and turns that the academic environment can can bring. Speaking of some of those twists and turns, you have a spoken word piece about giving birth to your PhD baby. I'm wondering if that would be a good transition <laughs> period for that. What do you think? Is it- That's one of the newer ones. So yeah, I can certainly um, I can certainly pull that one up. My goodness. Okay, so. Let me give you a little context about how this was created. So one of the things that I love about working in the expressive arts therapy program is that we ask a lot of our students, it's a counseling psychology program, uh, preparing students to become marriage and family therapists or licensed professional clinical counselors. There's a a way in which we ask our students to really look at themselves, to see themselves in all of their various intersectional identities, really look at the complexity of who they are. And that can be really scary for a lot of people because this is territory that's, you know, often uncharted. So what we have begun to do in our program, because we use the arts and we're blessed to have that as an additional medium for us to improvise with, bounce off of that, all of that, that we don't ask our students to do things that we're not willing to do ourselves. You know, that we take it very seriously that we model what it means to be a professional in expressive arts therapy. And so we do faculty narratives. <laughs> and every year we either pick a theme or just have an idea that we all sort of will agree to riff off of and see what comes up. And so this year, I was just really thinking about this process that I've been in. I had just advanced to candidacy in my PhD program, uh, recognizing that I'm getting ready to step out into the world with this new identity and that I've been birthing or like gestating. I've been in this gestation period for about six years. (laughs) (laughs) And I began to think about the women in my life who, I mean, I don't have any children and I'm one of the only people at my age at 44 years old that doesn't have any children. And so it was also kind of like, well, dog, you know, I've been going to all of these baby showers all of this time, like whatever, I'm going to like have a a PhD baby shower because I've been working just as hard on this thing, you know, and so I wanted to give pause and to celebrate and recognize that it's not the birthing of a PhD, it's a PhD baby shower, it's what happens before, like what kind of wisdom do you need in order to complete, like that's something that's always come up in baby showers for me, like, you know, you go to baby showers and then there's like this moment where they give mama wisdom and all of this stuff so I was like yeah I need some wisdom too (laughs) you know and just to have a moment to just acknowledge where I was in the in the process what had happened and and sort of how I'm right on the precipice of something new for myself so that's the the basis of it and I set up this whole thing and I did this this drama piece where I kind of waddled into the room and I had a backpack full of books like underneath this dress like I was pregnant and I asked you know the faculty members to ask me like ask me the 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 kinds of questions you would ask people at a at a baby shower like 
you know, you're absolutely glowing. How do you feel? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm exhausted most of the time and bloated with all these like articles and books I've been digesting and the brain weight gain. Oh my goodness. It's just, you know, that kind of thing. What are you going to name it? And then I gave the name of my dissertation, which is Spirituality and Creativity Among Culturally Empowered African-Americans, A Legacy of Empowered Community Liberation. So that's the title. So then I read this letter to my unborn PhD, and this is what I'm going to read right now. Okay. Dear PhD, you know, the idea that I even wanted you came as a surprise to me. I was minding my business, happily taking classes in the expressive arts therapy program when I had the first inkling that I wanted you to be a part of my life. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in research methods class and I remember falling in love with phenomenological and grounded theory research methods. And I started to think, what if? Then, while working on several papers in the master's program, I began to get frustrated because I couldn't find the research I was looking for on using expressive arts with the black community. You popped into my mind again. Your seed was firmly planted in my mind when I thought of being able, with your conception, to add to the body of research available. Folks who wanted to have validated the therapeutic healing experiences in the African-American community. The way a gospel song sung by a choir could give life to emotion otherwise rendered silent by systemic oppression. The way a child looks at themselves in the mirror after spending an afternoon between the legs of their caregivers as they part and grease, comb and braid designs that snake across the scalp, recreate sacred geometry with the comb, hair strands, and intentional prayers whispered into roots. The way that bass notes resonate inside hips that grind and whine on the dance floor crowded with sweaty, melanated skin that radiates light in the face of darkness. The more I thought about what good you could bring into the world, PhD, the more I wanted to birth you. But the idea of you was so foreign to me and everybody I knew. Nobody in my family had ever had or even wanted a PhD. I mean, I was afraid to tell my family that I wanted you, afraid of the immediate censure. Why would you want to spend your time doing that? Doesn't that cost a lot of money? How are you going to pay for that? You want to get a doctorate in what? Ah, oh, that ain't no real doctor. When are you going to have time to have real babies? Don't you want to focus on getting married again? <laughs> And further inside me live my own fears about you. Will I be able to do it? Am I stupid for getting into even more debt? Will my ideas be understood and respected? Do I even deserve to have this kind of experience or success? Nobody I know has ever done anything like this. But the light inside your seed penetrated the darkest crevices of my doubt. The very idea of you was magnetic. It drew to me all the things I needed. Doctor angels who whispered advice to me over surreptitious lunches. We think you need a different kind of format. Have you ever thought about distance learning? Doctor mentors who entrusted me to present research with them and write a chapter in their book. Colleagues who supported the additions of my work to the curriculum and tracked and named them back to me when I forgot. 
Students who celebrated my success before I even knew how to articulate exactly what it was that I was learning. You began to go grow thick, complex roots in my psyche as I learned about Cambon, Heidegger, Myers, Friere, and Fanon. And you blossomed in my belly, growing ripe and full with my own papers and presentations. And finally, now an approved dissertation proposal. And here I stand on the cusp, about 20 months away from the birth of you, my very own PhD baby. I wish for you a life of service, advocacy, compassion, and empathy. A life filled with students who become colleagues, who become friends. A life of research that changes the policies that help to dismantle structural oppression in psychology. My precious PhD baby, I wish you the reach of your ancestors whose hope is the energy you carry. With all my love, care, and attention, and intention, your candidate mama, Danielle. So beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Every time I read that, I'm like, oh my goodness. It really is all of those things. It really is, yeah. It also speaks to me about the, the medium of spoken word and taking the time to thoughtfully write that. It brings it up to me in a way that I think if we, if I just asked you, tell me about uh, doing a PhD, I, I wouldn't get that, that feeling. There's, there's so much richness there and emotion yeah. and the scenes you create of people in the community supporting you and the decisions and the dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so powerful and it speaks to the power of, of art, yes. you know, to convey things that maybe can't get conveyed in yeah. other other ways it just feels like it changed the conversation to hearing a spoken word piece no it does well one of the things that i think is the power of the arts is the use of metaphor and the way that metaphor is often connected to our just somatic body sensations you know that there's so much that the body knows that and so much wisdom that it carries and we often overlook it don't prioritize it and the way that like we move from sensation to emotion to cognitive thought, you know? And so we are actually prioritizing like the forward processing to the brain from the body, that the body is actually the first place where we know anything because of our, you know, nerve endings and the way we're picking up on everything in the environment all the time. I love the use of creative arts in therapy because it allows the other parts of our experience, our body to speak and to add their voice to the narrative. Beautiful. And what was your process with you know, making arts kind of a mm-hmm. important part of your life? I, mean, I know you have a background in spoken word, but mm-hmm. could you tell, tell us a little bit about that history? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think that there was a, ever a time when I wasn't involved in something creative. I mean, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about this family that I come from. My mom, I mean, she just always had us out in the garden. I learned how to sew when I was eight. I crocheted, I I was cooking, like all of these things that really helped me become who I was and it gave me a lot of space to have some time to think and process and all of that. And then, you know, she had four girls. So that meant that 
those four girls had all of our cousins, our girl cousins usually, with a couple of boy cousins sprinkled in there from time from time to time. And then all of our friends, like all the time, there was always a ton of girls at my house to the point where people would walk by and say, like, is this a girl's home or what? Because <laughs> there was always so many of us, like so many, but always doing something really creative, always, you know, engaged in art in some way, shape or form. And I actually didn't believe that I was an artist for the first like 20 years of my life. I thought that was something that my mom and my older sister were able to do because they were good at visual art and I wasn't good at visual art. So when I was in college, I was asked to keep a journal by one of my classes one of my professors, I, I just kept the journal and kept keeping it. And I started writing poems. And I remember that I would put this journal in a shoebox and then put the shoebox under my bed, like way in the, the back, in the middle. It was like I was trying to keep this a secret from even me. But it was the place where I would put all of the things that I was pondering and having difficulty with in my life, whatever, and then when I moved to the Bay Area in 2000, I was probably like 26 or 27. I was on this like spiritual journey and, and really wanting to understand my myself and my life within the context of the universe, like all of these very existential <laughs> kind of questions were coming up for me. I was feeling a lot of angst and unease in my in myself and in my body and, and that kind of thing. And so I was having a conversation with one of my girlfriends and she was going through the same thing too. I mean, in astrological terms, we would call that the, the Saturn return, but... I digress. We're not going to go there. So we just decided that we were going to have this adventure summer where we just turned toward our fear and like looked it dead in the eye. So we went skydiving and we went hiking and like all of these things that we had wanted to do. And it was great. Honestly, skydiving was the turning point for me because I felt like if I could do that thing that I was so incredibly afraid of, then I would never have another excuse for myself in life about being too scared to do anything. So I jumped off the edge of fear <laughs> and became a poet basically after that. I um, started writing and writing and writing and there used to be this poetry spot in Oakland called the Java House and it was incredible just some amazing black artists that would show up at that place it was um owned by Dwayne Wiggins who is one of the members of Tony 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 R&B group and so like it was just like the flyest place you could be in Oakland when I moved here I read a poem there and I was totally scared and terrified and all of that but that was actually prior to skydiving once I got back from the from the skydiving trip, it was like everything exploded. And I, you know, challenged myself to go to the Oakland Poetry Slam. I got involved in that community in the first year that I was in it, which was, I think, 2002. I made it onto the slam team. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then the next year in 2003, 
I made the slam team again, except this time I won that slam. And so I was the Oakland Poetry Slam champion in 2003. And our team went on to place like fourth in the nation out of 63 teams. I mean, we were on the final stage. This was an amazing team. We had, some people might know these poets like Scorpio Blues and Princess Powell and Inner City and like, and and Lucky Seven. I mean, these were, these are some incredible poets and they've gone on to do like really amazing things. And then I sort of left there, kind of got a little jaded by just the, scene you know how scenes can happen so then I decided that if I was going to be a poet that I should like get some education around that so I I ended up going to San Francisco State in their creative writing program for poetry and I did a year of that program and then just decided it wasn't quite the right fit for me because my writing was getting better technically but that was never what where my writing came from. It was always more of a spiritual endeavor for me. And I just needed something that had more like heart and like community in it. So I took some time and, you know, while I was there, I ended up taking a, a grant writing course. And I started writing grants for like nonprofits in Oakland and work for a nonprofit, started my own nonprofit which was called Creation Cocoon for Girls. And we taught like girls empowerment through creative arts. And it was a good program, so good that they started telling me things. And I was like, I'm not equipped for this. I need to go back to school. And that's when I found the Expressive Arts Therapy Program. It was like the perfect blend of everything that I had ever wanted. I got a chance to write still, but I also got a chance to bring in these other aspects of myself. Like I had always been involved in drama when I was young, like growing up in the church. Um, what else? Their movement. I was always a dancer. I was during that time when I was writing, I was also dancing and doing West African dance. And that just really cracking my spirit open and really making me like pliable to receive all of the African center work that I would later do. Yeah, there, there were just a lot of different moments and it was not, I just take these winding paths in life. Like I'm always on the scenic route. I don't have a direct path to anything, <laughs> but it was, it was great. It, it, was, it allowed me to figure out who I was along the way. And once I got into the expressive arts therapy program, it was kind of like, yes, this is it. This is what I've been looking for my entire life. And then recognizing that I wanted to continue my studies and do a, a doctorate degree and sort of add to the body of research that was available, that kind of thing. Yeah. Hearing you talk about you know, the powers of, of spoken word, I mean, a lot of times in therapy, you know, it's, it's very um, private and, and individual conversation, and that can be very helpful for people. And there's also the power of performing to an appreciative audience and saying things to such an appreciative audience and being part of a community where many people are sharing things, appreciative audience. And I've, I've become really interested in this, the power of performance yes. and power of, of audience. Yes. And um, I'm wondering, as an insider of you know the spoken word scene, and I'm sure you do a lot of that in the EXA program where you're sharing things to an audience, um, what are, do you have some thoughts about this, the power of performance and audience? Yes, the power of performance on audience, I think really connects with um, catharsis. 
And that's actually the the sort of end stage of rites of passage experiences. In a rites of passage experience, people are gathered from a community, then they come away, they kind of go into, like if we're talking about like the ancient village concept of it, they go away into the bush, they learn some things, they have some trials and tribulations, it's hard, it's difficult, but it's also this liminal space where they get a chance to really develop these ideas about who they are and then when they come back together there's this sharing that happens and it's a catharsis and it's the act of revealing to others that self that is transcendent that that connects with everything and everyone and it is amazing how in our sort of western capitalistic kind of world where that part of ourselves gets covered over almost immediately upon becoming a person, you know? You get a chance to have that for like five seconds when you're a kid. And then after that, it's gone. We squash that. You know, I feel like so much of what happens in spoken word venues is people being brave enough to like take off that covering that they've, sort of layered over their hearts for many years, decades, maybe a whole lifetime, that you get a chance to start pulling that away and showing people who you really are. And the act of doing that with a room full of witnesses, it's an opportunity to be seen and held in a way that most people have not ever been. And I remember I used to have to like, talk myself into, you know, going up to the mic. Like, it's a real thing. (laughs) And I would just say, you know, somebody out there needs to hear what I have to say. And even if that person is just me, hearing me say it to me, that that's important. (laughs) Do you have another uh, spoken word piece you could share with us? Oh my gosh, I have lots. This one is about... When I left SLAM, actually. Because SLAM is a a very particular thing. You have three minutes with a 10-second grace period to say what you need to say. No probs, just you and the mic. People memorize their poems. They perform them enough that audience members will remember certain parts of it and say it. So it's amplified in the room. And it can be hard to compete when you are in a room where other people know other people's poems or when the audience knows other people's poems and you're coming up and brand new and whatever else, or maybe what you're talking about is too heavy. Like people are sick of it and they don't want to hear that. They want to laugh and be entertained. And you come up and you're like talking about dismantling the system of oppression like every week. (laughs) They don't want to hear that. (laughs) But anyway, so... This is, it's called Neo-Blues Babies, Why Some Poets Sing the Blues. They say they sang the blues because it wasn't no happy melodies to be sung. Wistful words written on water-soaked pages. Tinted ink blurring pages white to blue. A journal half used. Damn, even journals got the blues? They didn't know how to let oceanic offerings spray across their legs in playful delight. 
have a hard time making words skydive and bungee jump off pages, dance and party off teeth and liquored breath. Life lived in three minute intervals with the 10 second grace period, shadow boxing and swinging arms in eternal fights, a laborious balance of entertainment and truth. So poets and singers and rappers with charcoal eyes and sienna skin turn blue. Harmonize on Azure breakbeat out of contempt for never having been taught a new song for year after century, getting the same sheet music. They don't know nothing else. Been fighting all along since the day they was took. Some want to be placated. Some want them to masticate all the words that's been building up in the back of their throats because some can't take the blues and the rhythm. They got too black and way too strong, too redundant, some say, and it's bombing in some heads and ears, and some try to clamp hands down hard over it, try to drown out the sound. Blues don't never go away. Gets folded up and pressed down in the basement with the unwanted things. Simmers subterranean until they get called back down by the unwanted things. They pick up a record again, set a needle to it, feel the Warm crackling between slow aching lines way down in their spines. Neo blues babies understand it's folks and memories at home that need to see themselves validated. Amen corners waiting to shout, tell it, mm-hmm, teach girl, teach, know all the shit they went through. Don't plunge between crevices of planks on stages, but gets moaned, hummed, hollered, and strummed into one of those good old melancholy blues melodies. Gorgeous. <laughs> You're bringing up the blues, mm-hmm. and that's something that goes very deep. Mm-hmm. And I've heard uh, Cornel West talk about the blues as like a philosophy of, of life, mm-hmm. you know, and how there can be sort of an obsession, especially in uh, your American philosophies and psychologies, to be you know for wholeness and perf- perfect harmony and everything. The blues is something different and he said Charlie you think Charlie Parker's upset because he can't do this perfect harmony he's he rides on the dissonance he rides on the blue notes he's given up on that he's gone beyond that you know there's wisdom there about living and living with suffering and living through hard times yes. you talk a lot about an African-centered psychology mm-hmm. and what wisdom do you see there that maybe you don't see talked about in other psychologies or your American psychologies or well <sighs> It's interesting because, well, I just want to say that blues is a derivation, right? It is what Africans who were part of the Middle Passage and brought here violently and separated from their culture in such a way that they could not even have the drums. They couldn't have their spiritual tools. They couldn't you know, be with Obatala and Oshun and like all of these deities. So it's it's a derivation. It is a reclamation really of the African spirit in a torturous moment. You know, I don't have freedom. I don't have whatever, but you're also not going to take my joy either. You know what I mean? So in this book written by Ferdinand Jones and his brother, whose name I can't remember right now, they they are black men who are 
jazz musicians and psychiatrists also. And they wrote this book, edited this book called um, The Triumph of the Soul, and it's all about the history of black music and its connection to psychology. And one of them, it says, talks about the challenge attitude. It's called Jazz and Resilience, this chapter. And I quote it extensively in all of my work because it's so good. (laughs) But Jazz and Resilience is about like how improvisation is necessary in order to navigate any difficult circumstance. And they're connecting it directly with this idea that if you grow up and you have your living in a um, systemically oppressive environment that denounces every part of your spirit and your being, in order to be resilient, you have to take a challenge attitude to every single thought that is presented to you, which means that you hold the ability to say, hmm, do I actually believe what this person is telling me? Or is there another way that I think about this? And it's the challenge attitude in every single thing that we do. So I I feel like that's important to be able to, to talk about because the other piece is that African centered work is really about reclaiming the joy, the balance, the harmony in a place where we have been unharmonious and unbalanced and all of that. The connection between a challenge mindset and jazz is like hearing something and improvising off of it or riffing off of it. How, how does the connection with the challenge? Right. Yes. So the challenge attitude is exactly that. It's about improvising. So, you know, there's a refrain and everybody knows it and they play it. And then the challenge attitude is to say, hmm, I wonder what else I could do with this, how else this could be interpreted. And that's when you hear people take their instrument, go off in a completely different direction that really is usually an embodiment of their soul, you know, what their soul needs to speak at that time as an artist. And they'll do that for however long they do that. And then they always come back to the refrain. Like that's the great part about jazz is when you hear this musician and they've gone off on this whole other direction and then they bring it back and you're like, oh my God, I could fall out my chair. That was so beautiful, you know? <laughs> so, um, but it's that challenge attitude that, you know, you're giving me this, but this is what I think of it. It's the reauthoring no matter what, you know, that all the time where we reauthoring ourselves. And so then how, how can we access more of that? But so uh, just pulling up some information about like African-centered psychology and really that it is about being able to, and, and it connects exactly with postmodernism actually, um, that everything is, is relative and sort of exists on a continuum Um, that there's, you know, it's subjective, that there are systemic causes, and we have lots of different perspectives in that. It's also very effective. So like, one of the things that I talk about a lot when I'm talking about African-centered psychology is the difference between the Descartesian view, I think, therefore I am, 
and the African-centered view, which, oh, I'm going to forget his name, which is unfortunate. Anyway, the African-centered perspective is that I sense the other. I feel the other. I dance the other. Therefore, I am. Come on. So automatically, like we're in a like interdependent, communal, relational piece that says it's not just me that makes me who I am and gives me my life and breath and meaning, but it is the fact that I live in community and share with other people. And that for me is why I started off talking about my family in Los Angeles and how close-knit we were because I don't get a chance to become who I am without that whole group of people. I'm getting chills hearing about that dance with the other. um, But it also strikes me as very different than a lot of the psychologies that I learned, you know, when I was in school, which is much more individualistic and much more about, we talk about making a cohesive sense of self and working through, you know, inner conflicts and inner issues like that, which... Now, for me, I'm I'm really interested in community and people nested in communities and and poetic ways of describing things. Right. Um, so there's this one style of of um, African centered psychology, and there are many different styles. There's not one, and that's also a, a misconception: is that when people think about Black psychology, they think it's just this one thing and there are so many different um, black psychologies but there's one style that was developed that sort of wanted to draw from all of the different traditions and it's called into psychotherapy and it has four main principles which is about harmony balance interconnectedness and authenticity so it sounds a lot like humanistic theory right But the one thing that sort of makes it stand apart is this idea of interconnectedness. And underneath that, it's about oneness so that everything is from a common source and is composed of common substance. So we're talking about like from a very like ontological perspective, the the very nature and essence of life and that we're all connected to that. And that human experiences are connected internally and externally so that we have a internal relationship with ourselves. And then we have these external relationships that are necessary and require attention and that all of life is a microcosm of a macrocosm. So it's like me within, you know, I am because we are and because we are, I am. That's that's, you know, something that comes out of the African-centered tradition and that what affects any part of life affects all of life. And so again, that connects to systems theories and things like that, but is really getting at the root and and that these are coming from African-based philosophical ways of being. There is this um, idea called uh, the two cradle theory. And I wish I had my my good friend and colleague, Adiba Detterville here, who talks so eloquently about the two cradle theory, but I'm going to try and paraphrase it. But it's basically saying that the world is sort of broken up into these like two 
ways of being. You've got the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere or like the Northern uh, regions and the more Southern regions. And in the Northern regions, it's cold. You're needing to warm up. So there's a way in which people set away like a storehouse and it's almost like hoarding, like, you know, trying to save up. And that a lot of Western (laughs) psychology comes out of those kinds of philosophies from like the Northwestern parts of Europe that get really cold and they're needing to think about survival and like, how do I make it, you know, through these tough cold times? And then in the Southern parts closer to the equator that kind of thing I mean you think about the um the way that the Nile Valley which is the cradle of civilization what it looked like back in the day it was like dripping with like resources because it's like right in the middle like of the equatorial regions and there's nothing that you need to prepare for because it's like you know you need a mango it's like dripping off the trees the water is flowing there's like minerals in the earth and there's trees and it's all lush and green and that kind of thing and then so who do you become in that environment you have a way of being that recognizes that everything is going to happen in due time. You can just kind of sit back and relax. People often talk about moving in time and on time. So like I'm the type of person that likes to move in time. I don't really like to rush. I like to make sure that I have enough space to do whatever. Being on time means that you're like, you know, really watching the clock and that kind of thing. And so in that southern cradle it's kind of like oh yeah we'll just like get together when we get together it'll be all right (laughs) and there's a way of just accepting life as it comes rather than having to prepare and like act on life in order to survive but then that we're also looking at the very foundations of life when we talk about some of these Egyptian principles like I I could just go on and on, but I'm just going to talk about the principle of Ma'at. And so Ma'at was an Egyptian deity who held the balance of life. She is represented by the scales. And so at the end of your life, you were supposed to place your heart on the scale. And if it was lighter than a feather, then you would, you know, enter the hereafter. And that the seven principles of Ma'at is what we're really striving for. Truth, justice, and righteousness, propriety, harmony, balance, reciprocity, and order. All of these require that you are in relationship with someone else. These are not solely thinking about me. Like, yes, they can pertain to me, but they also pertain to how you need to um, show up in life. And so... Some of the African cultural values, sense of community, sense of good human relations, sense of sacredness of life, sense of hospitality, a sense of the sacred and of religion, a sense of time, and a sense of respect and authority for the elders. So, I mean, you know, I could go on and on, but. Yeah, it's beautiful. (laughs) Um, And I'm, we talked also about uh, songs that you might be illustrative of some principles that do you have some in mind? Yeah, let me. Um, 
There's a song by Gregory Porter, and it's called Paint It on Canvas. And it talks about the way in which we live our lives in these communal spaces and that people are constantly like painting on our canvases, like adding colors and things like that. And he talks about this sort of process of like, well, do I also have an ability to put my own colors on there as well? And so that is, I feel like connects a lot with narrative principles and things like that about being able to reauthor ourselves as well to have a say in what the final product looks like. I have started this process where I'm doing season paintings. I'm reclaiming the visual artist in myself rather than make it an experience that feels very stressful. I have decided to take three or four months and work on a painting. And I just like do one thing at a time. I don't try to do it all at once or like seem like I've got this great idea or whatever. But I just like every couple of days, I'll put some one thing on the canvas. Anyway, the song is called Painted on Canvas. We are like children. We're painted on canvases, picking up shades as we go. We start off with gesso. Brushed on by people we know Watch your technique as you go Step back and admire my view Can I use the colors I choose? Do I have some say what you use? Can I get some greens and some blues? We're made by the pigment of paint that is put upon our stories are told by our youths like motley and midden these masters of peace and light layers of color and time step back and admire my view can i use the colors i choose do i have some say what you can I get some green with my blue? Beautiful. Uh, you know, who first told me about Gregory Porter was Shoshana Simmons. She sent me Time is Ticking for when I had a radio show at the Calix oh, Berkeley yeah. station. Yeah. Your voice. And, <laughs> hi, Shoshana. I know. Hi. <laughs> you know, some of the lyrics that stood out for me is about, you know, appreciating the view. The person, and also, can I pick the colors I choose? And you know, I don't have much of a background in visual art either. It's more like music, and yeah. so. But I think about it. and that organization I was telling you about in LA is called the Painted Brain. Yes. It's all about painting yeah. the brain, painting one's life, painting yeah. one's mind, and this makes me think of that yeah. as well. You know, some of the things I thought, and if I was going to start to paint, just facing a blank canvas would it's be a lot terrifying. to to face. <laughs> so, and I think about like a idea. Oh, just go forth and paint your life anew. If it's a blank canvas, that feels terrifying. I would like someone to kind of help me, not by exactly telling me exactly what to paint, mm-hmm. but some kind of way of assisting me so it's not just me in a blank canvas. Although and, that's a, a very integral part of the, <laughs> of the painting process itself. I had this um, moment the first time I was presented with a blank page that I was supposed to put some colors on in the expressive arts therapy program. And I almost cried 
Like I was on the brink of running out of the room. That's how terrified I was. I just was like, okay, Danielle, just start anywhere. Just pick one color. And that's what I did. And it turned into this explosion of colors that I ended up being really happy with. You kind of have to have that moment. Like that's part of the the developmental process. I'm thinking about metaphors with mm-hmm. therapy and painting mm-hmm. and painting a new canvas or mm-hmm. someone who wants to paint new paintings for their life. But usually they're riffing off of an idea. And that's what's great about therapy and and using art in therapy like you know we're exploring all of these various aspects of a person's life and really giving attention to it paying attention to the nuance and details that people are telling us and usually what happens and this is something that we teach in the expressive arts therapy program is that you are looking you're listening for the metaphor this is why it goes really well with narrative, actually, because you're listening for the metaphor and narrative as well, and you're using the exact words that they are, you know, having that experience near language, that you're staying with that experience near language, and you are helping them to explore the me- metaphors that they bring in and add texture and richness to them, really expand and improvise on those metaphors. And then so when we talk about like coming up with a new way of being in life, you know, having this new canvas that that we're working on, we're usually taking something from an old canvas and bringing that one little thing and placing it on this new canvas and then being able to break it out. So like, if that were something that were happening in real time in a, in a session, I would ask the client to go and find like in magazines, one image that might work and then create a painting based on that one collage image, you know, so you place it wherever you want to on the canvas and then, you know, use color to expand out, you know, so that it's not, it's not just that you're pulling from nothing in all aspects. In whatever we do, we're pulling from something else. And you're talking about narrative and experience in your language. When you were first encountering uh, narrative therapy, what about it seemed useful or helpful or stood out to you that seemed like something that would be beneficial? I loved the... I am not the problem. The problem is the problem aspect of it. It totally took the problem outside of this very personal identified place and really contextualized it to say, yeah, I'm a part of it because it's in my life. But I may not be the root of this problem. This problem could be located systemically. It could be located within my family of origin. It could be, you know, located in all of these various places, not just one place, but many places. And that was like really exciting to me to be able to not have to problematize myself in order to be in the therapy but to recognize that I am living in a particular social context that supports 
this problem and that if I can understand how this problem is being supported by this context, then I can maybe make some changes that will be more supportive to me rather than the problem. And then just this way, like I loved externalization. I feel like as a poet, it just felt right you know? <laughs> to be able to externalize a problem and give it like a, a form and a shape and then interact with it. I loved also the way that we could work systemically with it, doing more collaborative work so that if a community has a problem or they're all navigating a similar challenge, then how can we work with that? And being introduced to the tree of life and the many iterations we use it for in the in the expressive arts therapy program. One of my colleagues, Phil Weglars, just recently used the tree of life to to help us organize our like spiel that we tell people when they are interested in our program. He like broke it down into the tree of life. I was like, this is amazing. So it just permeates everything that we do, just really thinking systemically, locating ourselves. I love the way that it allowed you to say, I am a person who is in the process of being and that I get to have all of these iterations of myself, that it doesn't have to be static and that it is all informed by what is happening around us, the context that we live in, really acknowledging the socioeconomic, socio-political, socio-cultural, historical places that need to be addressed and acknowledged in order to know the problem more fully. And then what are the ways in which I have acted to resist this problem? You know, so there's that resistance and liberation piece that is really important, I think, in in narrative as well, that, that appeals to my sensibility as a person who is a resistor and who is always seeking liberation. You know, and hearing the ways you were talking about the EXA program at uh, the narrative camp this summer got me thinking that you and the EXA team is really exploring a lot of directions that the rest of us in the narrative field could learn from and could explore as well. And I, you know, I like can, when is the documentary coming about <laughs> your program so we could all learn from it? But I mean, is there a way you can introduce us? Like what, what, what if, what are you kind of inquiring about in the, in the program that, that uh, might be helpful for the rest of us to go to learn about those directions? And where do you think narrative therapy could grow from where it is now that, um, that, yeah, I would say that we we have this, there was this saying that I sort of developed when I was interim program chair when Shoshana was out on sabbatical, and I was terrified, to be quite honest. And the, and the thought that always calmed me down was, I don't know everything, but together we do. And we've sort of started to use that a lot in our program and it's sort of become the model of our program. I don't know everything, but together we do. So what it is about is one acknowledging it's a decentering de of the expert position one. And it is saying all around me are resources. 
all around me are people and ideas and experiences that I can draw from. So I don't have to know everything. I don't have to come in as this expert who knows everything, but I can delve into the inquiry. So that's one piece. I would say the other pieces that are really important are the act of play, improvisation, attuning to the body and emotion and sensation, and centering culture. Those are some of the things that we do, I feel like, in the program that sort of sets it apart a little bit from some of the other programs that I've been exposed to and hear about. And that it's all done with an immense amount of creativity, like really expecting that people are creative beings and know exactly what it is that they need. They know what color they need to choose. They know what sound it is that need that they're hearing. They know the line that needs to be spoken out and articulated dramatically. They know. So it's up to us to facilitate a process that's going to help them expand their metaphor out. Like that is a direction that we could go in narrative. I remember the first time I went to a narrative, (laughs) a narrative training, like purely narrative. And I was like, oh my God, they talk so much. (laughs) There's so much words. There's so many words. And I was just like, "Mm." I think I could probably like paint this or I think I could probably, you know, do a melody with this or I think I could have like whatever. And I'm always thinking in visuals. I'm thinking in um, scripts. I'm thinking in poems. I'm thinking in like visual arts because there's a lot of attention put into question asking. And I like that. And I'm also kind of like, hmm. Well, what if we didn't ask the brain that question? What if we asked the body? What if we asked the elbow that question? wonder what that would be. And I know that gets us into gestalt a little bit. But, <laughs> but it's, it's that thing that recognizing that our brains know stuff, but our bodies know stuff too. And how can we elevate our brain bodies together? in an interdependent collective way. My experience, there's a lot of people interested in that and interested mm-hmm. in, in developing that. They maybe haven't been exposed to that way of working yet and that way of teaching yet and that way of learning yet. And so I was wondering, is there any way, while we're waiting for the documentary to come out, if, if we were watching the documentary yeah. of the EXA program and it was one of those days when you're like, this is a good day. Mm-hmm. Could you can you tell us about like a, maybe a scene where you feel like, this is, this is what we want it to be like. This is what we hope the EXA program is like. Uh-huh. What, what does it look like when it's a good day at the EXA oh program? It can look so many different ways. My goodness. We're really playful in that program. Like, <laughs> I, I, I get that. In ways that I think people are, it's unexpected. Okay, so we have a cohort right now who they just are very playful and I think the moment that I felt like oh my goodness we're really doing something here is when part of their task at the end of every semester they're broken up into smaller arts practice groups and so each person has to engage in an arts practice while they're going through the program so 
they decide what it is, how they're going to do it, whatever. But then they get into these groups where people are doing all kinds of arts practices. So if I'm, let's say, focusing on dance, somebody else might be focusing on singing. Somebody else might be learning to play an instrument. Somebody else might be doing performing recipes or something who knows what it is they're always real super creative and then they get together and present some aspect of how they've been working over the semester and inevitably it touches on everything that we've been that they are encountering in the program it might be what it means to be a student what it means to never have enough time what it means to be a woman accessing the the divine feminine what it means to be a person of color or a queer person or someone with who is navigating neurodivergence or whatever but all done playfully and creatively they come up with these presentations and sometimes they're skits or whatever else and last year there is one group that just they produced a whole like like saturday night live type of presentation so there were all of these skits and all of these like interludes and you know performances and you know moments where it was really thoughtful and thought-provoking, but then there were moments that were just hilarious. Like there was one scene where two students talked about, they switched off. So they first started where the therapist didn't have good enough physical boundaries with their client and was too touchy-feely. And it was hilarious. It was called bad therapy. So all of the things that you're not supposed to do. And then they switched. The therapist was a white woman in the and the client was a was a black man and it was like all the things you're never supposed to do and they just turned it on its head and flipped it around and made it the funniest thing i i think i have ever seen i almost fell out of my chair it was so funny and so it's like playing with all of the taboos playing with the things that you're not supposed to play with like naming it having some reverence for that. And they worked really hard to see like what the boundaries were, like how far they could go. Cause I talked to them about this, like, how did you put that together? And they were like, oh yeah, we played with it. We, you know, really determined like w- when it was going to go too far, or whatever else like that. But it was the idea that we could take these themes. We could take the things that we struggle with, even as, as um, clinicians and be playful with them make fun of ourselves in it, talk about the fact that we're not experts and we're bumbling around all the time, regardless of you know how professional we're supposed to be in this field and all of that, that we're not gonna get it right. And that there are moments within that that are so brilliantly true and so brilliantly authentic that it will bring us to tears, you know? It's hard to articulate what it is that we do. But again, we start off with these faculty narratives and we are very revealing. I don't think any of us come out of these faculty narratives without like crying and like really having bared our souls. But then that sets up an environment where students don't feel they don't feel limited by not being able to have emotion themselves because there's this way in which we train in the field that says you're supposed to be the expert. You're supposed to be professional all the time. And if you have feelings, then that's not good. You need to take that somewhere else. 
you need to go take that to therapy, you are not mature enough, whatever, instead of saying, actually, feelings are a part of life that we have to have in order to be human beings. And that as we're having them, we can also have a meta perspective of our process and be able to cognitively process, think, and make narrative, right? Because the narrative is is how we put it all together. You know, we've got all of these disparate experiences, feelings, whatever, and it's like a mashup. But then the narrative is about putting it together and it creates a mosaic that we can tell a story from, you know? And that that's sort of what we're doing in our programs and that each one of the classes always has a collaborative and artistic component. So we're always brushing up against that, bumping up against it, like saying, well, what does this look like? How would we do this? I don't think we've delivered the same program twice because every cohort is different. They need different things and we respond to that. We're improvisational with it. Yeah, it makes you think of one of my favorite narrative books is uh, you know, by Jenny Freeman, Playful Approaches to Serious Problems. Yes. And she's local. Yes, yes I know. The East Bay. But I, I thought of riffing on that title, Playful Approaches to Serious Teaching or Serious uh-huh. Pedagogy. Yes. And what's it like when, when it's a playful approach I to mean, learn? We even play with the word pedagogy. We're like, do we, is, are we really teaching children? Maybe we should call it andragogy because we're teaching adult learners. Or maybe because we're doing this from a feminist perspective, we should be gynagogy. So like, we're like, even that we like try to break open and, and not be so prescriptive, but that we're really responding to it's the yes and right so our students like we present some information to our students and then our students do something right whatever it is that they do and then we respond to that and then they respond to us and so it's this back and forth collaborative thing that we get a chance to be really playful with and I you know sometimes students are like oh my god that's this is like nothing I've ever (laughs) experienced before and they don't know how to take it they want us to be like you know very prescriptive and then we break that box and in the end it's like I I hear most often from students I am a completely different person and I know how to have a plan and throw it away and that to me is like the that's what I would want of my therapist I would want them to have a plan and to know when to throw it away well, it goes back to improvisation, it sounds mm-hmm. like, like starting with maybe a plan or a refrain mm-hmm. and improvising off. And I think about, and children are very playful in the way they improvise with what's happening. And Gregory Porter, in that lyric, she talks something about, like, you know, we're, all, we're all children or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes. And um, having an adulthood that still has that childlike spirit of play or improvisation or adult versions of that. So we've been talking for like hour and a half an hour or so um is there is there other things that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure we discuss there's one idea that i was considering bringing in and i think it could also add to the discussion and it's this idea that i've been uh, working with in my dissertation work around the will to adorn 
in all of these psychological theories, there's the will to this and the will to that, the will to meaning, the will to, you know, whatever. And there is a writer, Zora Neale Hurston, in the um, African-American community, and she coined this phrase, the will to adorn, which is the will of African-Americans to, like, just add some flavor and like put the stank on it. You know what I mean? Like whatever. But to but basically to add flourish and adornment to every single thing that you do just because you can, you know? And I see it, it's the one thing that I feel like carries through from Africa to every part of the diaspora is that there's this will to adorn. Like we're gonna make it special and it's going to be flamboyant and flashy and fun and no one can tell us anything about it like you can't say what it's going to be i uh pulled up that song by uh outcast so fresh and so clean feel like that song it has a, a that will to adorn all in it I remember seeing them I had gone to the uh their concert when that album came out I think it was like Stank On Ya I went to that concert and when they played that song So Fresh and So Clean I have never seen an audience like a crowd all of a sudden have all of the self-esteem that they have ever wanted in their lives like come out and into the, the space with each other. So like people were like, you know, dusting themselves off and like <laughs> primping and all kinds of stuff, dusting each other off like you look good. Everybody is so fresh and so clean in here. It was just, and I feel like that's a piece that I know my work as a clinician has it is done well when I see that part of my client show up, like about the thing that they've had the problem with, you know, that that problem story has now been transformed and they've got this new reauthored alternative story and they are so about it and so into it that they are like dusting themselves off like yeah that problem mm -mm, I know what to do about it now and they get that so fresh and so clean attitude about it like that to me is that will to adorn that I feel like everybody needs in some aspect of their life it's like come on if you can't do it for yourself if your community is not supporting you in it what are we doing <laughs> you know honestly <laughs> So I think it's that that kind of playfulness that we've got to cultivate. Yeah, that makes me think of you know, 
going from a problem story or problem saturated life to an alternative story uh-huh. and then adorning that alternative story, yeah. <laughs> that alternative way of being yeah. through the arts or through style or mm-hmm. through whatever. Right, because inevitably when, and I would like for people to really notice this, like notice what happens when your clients start to make change. The, the changes that they're making on the inside, they start to want to show on the outside. And so they might start dressing differently. Maybe their posture, the way they sit in the chair is different. Maybe they get a new haircut or hair color or something about them changes because everybody wants to reflect that alternative story in their external life in some way. Like as I was going through all of my changes, I like locked my hair. I I got a, a nose piercing. Like I was just like in this place where I wanted people to know that there is something different about me and you need to pay attention to this alternative story that I am sharing with you right now. I know you have a, a large playlist of songs. We talked about two of them now. I'd love to hear another one. Let me see. Okay, I'm going to play this uh, song by Carolyn Malachi. It's called Beautiful Dreamer. It's a great song. Focusing you know, on some things in me, but maybe I'd like to hear from you. Like, what, um, how, what does the song mean to you, and what stands out to you that makes you think about our discussion? Yeah, that <clears throat> often when you know we're working therapeutically, you know, people come to us and they're really struggling. And this is a conversation that I would have with myself, like all the words in that song it would be something that I would want to sing to myself to help me remember that this is a process and that I am in the process of becoming and that we don't often give ourselves like we have to be the finished product like that's what life sort of wants from us and so the resistance is to say no actually I am in process and a work of art all at the same time. Not holding that as a dichotomy, but really a process of being. I feel like this that song just really says that to me. There's this line in this song where it says, when the world makes you feel weak, you must be strong. It's just like, you know, 
It's the challenge attitude. You just defy whatever people are trying to make you be in service of what you, who you know you are and what you know you've been brought here to do. It's like about purpose and like being ourselves no matter what and finding communities of people to help support us in that. None of it happens in isolation that we do it in community. Talking about process and becoming you know, when we were at the narrative camp, Arturo Sanchez from Chico, Chico State said he asked his students, you know, would you rather be a noun or a verb? And talking about uh, you know, the question of who are you becoming versus who are, who are you, and, um, more about process than a stable, mm-hmm. fixed thing. And also the line that stood out for me also was um, the world needs you. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about that group Painted Brain, which talks about uh, seeing People come in not as clients, but as contributors is the word they use. And you were saying how in a community or in like an ancient village, everyone is a contributor and everyone has a role to play. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that as part of identity is you're a contributor. Mm-hmm. You have something to give. The world needs you. Yes. How powerful that line is. And so many of us have either lives or experiences that have told us we're you know, capable of being thrown away. And that is not the reality. The reality is exactly that, that you're needed and that there is something very particular about who you are that we're not going to get from anybody else. And that if you don't bring that and give it to the community, then who's going to do it? You've got this spirit about yourself and that we need that in order for the community to be as full and rich as it could possibly be. Well, and thinking about people, I like to hear this podcast. It's also, I think, people who are on their own windy road to finding their way to contribute and to finding where they where they fit, where the world needs mm-hmm. them. And I'd also like to for them to hear some what you, what you've been talking about today. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm definitely like the person who's like handing out water or lemonade on the side of the windy road. Like, yes, because I'm in my own scenic route process all the time. (laughs) I just, I wish I had a more, you know, direct route at times, but really it's, it's the windiness of the road. It's the scenic, it's the scenery along the way that has made me who I am. It's not been because I knew exactly what I wanted to do and went there and did it and all of that. It's just like, who does that? I don't know how to do that. Maybe somebody else does. And maybe they could teach me. Maybe that's their role. Is there anything else you want to talk about or any other songs you want to play? Or There was one thing that I was having a, a thought about. I hope I didn't come off as being derogatory to the to the narrative way of, you know, lots of questions and talking because I do have a lot of respect for the way in which questions are crafted in narrative. I really really do. When Shoshana and I were at this this particular narrative event, what we realized is that we really are creating a third thing in the um in the expressive arts therapy program. I mean, it's rooted in social constructionism. It's rooted in postmodernism. One of the things that I like to talk about when I talk about postmodernism is that it is both traditional theories of postmodernism and it's all of the things that have 
become as a result of it. So I, I like to include cultural psychologies. We talked a lot about, you know, black psychology, African centered psychology, but there are, you know, Latinx psychologies, there are Asian psychologies, there are native psychologies, there are psychologies for the entire world. And that I, I like to give respect to those. And that I also want to talk about queer theory and like, neurodiversity and the neurodiverse paradigm. Like, I want to talk about those things within the context of postmodernism and, and wrap it in because it's all about these ways of being able to define ourselves outside of this sort of modernist way that says we have to reduce our experiences to, you know, quantifiable ways of being. That is generally not what I have witnessed in the world. <laughs> well, is there any way that we might be able to hear more about the EXA program? Or I mean, we talked about you know, there's so many innovations that happen in that program, and is there any possibility that it, they can get it sent out on YouTube videos, or you could have students make some of their favorite practices and share them with the rest of us? So I think a lot of us would really like to learn from what yeah, you're doing. I think it's that's probably the next stage. I mean, we have definitely been working really hard in the last, I would say, like five, six years in developing and sort of refining what it is that we do. And just this year, we launched the um, low residency version of our program. And so we have our inaugural cohort in that. And as a result, we are recording more because we want our materials to be available to our distance students. And so I think it's going to naturally come out of that. We just and we don't necessarily have a lot of time to write, which is unfortunate, but that I think is going to change as well. Like we are definitely looking at some projects on the horizon. Like Shoshana and I have been um, imagining a narrative expressive arts textbook. You know, it would be an edited textbook and we've got some like ideas for chapters and who we would want to bring in to, you know, talk about the things that they're doing. So there's that. But yes, that we, we're creating more like video content. It's not going to be super well produced because it's just us. Although we do have videographers in our program who are helping us right now. I just want to you know, give a shout out to Yun Yi Huang, who is amazing and has been helping us record some of our content and get it video ready. So I think you'll see more of it in the in the next few years. And certainly not just from us, but our students as well, who are, you know, taking the work beyond what we could have ever even imagined. Thanks so much, Danielle. Yes. This is a pleasure. I, I'm feeling inspired. And I'm looking forward to the post-production when I can listen to this again and learn more from <laughs> those conversations. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate it. And big thanks again to Danielle Drake. If you go online to sfbantr.org, you'll have the show notes with her contact information. If you'd like to send any messages or ask any questions, you can also hear the full versions of the songs we discussed. And uh, this instrumental piece 
for the intro and the outro here, I made this from GarageBand Loops. And that just about does it. Thanks for listening.